from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined's Science News Roundup. On today's program, we're going to ask a biomedical researcher about blowing up asteroids. We'll talk to a wildland ecologist about how birth order shapes personalities. And we'll chat with an experimental psychologist about dimming the sky to combat global warming. It's the March Science News Roundup on Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather some of our favorite former guests to talk about some of the biggest stories in science research and exploration. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with a panel of people from vastly different academic backgrounds. And we'll get you up to speed at least a little on what's been happening in the wide world of science. Joining us today on the line, as she did last month for the Roundup, is Rachel Casper, an evolutionary biologist and biomedical researcher at the University of Colorado. Rachel, welcome back. Hey, great to be here again. Thanks again. Also on the line from Utah State University is wildland ecologist Paul Rogers. He was last with us in November to talk about his research on the massive aspen clone in central Utah known as Pando, which might just be the largest organism in the world. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And finally, with us in studio is experimental psychologist Angie Fagerlin. She last joined us in January to talk about why patients often withhold information from their doctors. Angie, we're glad you're back. I'm glad to be back. Thank you. So let's see here. We've got a biologist, an ecologist, and a psychologist. They walk into a radio studio. It must be time to talk about... Space, the final frontier. A new study published in the journal Icarus suggests that one of the ways we have theorized we could deal with an asteroid that is headed on a collision course with our planet, well, it probably won't work. In short, my friends, we probably can't blow up asteroids after all, not just because the explosion it would take to do so would be huge, but because even if we blew the thing apart, the gravity of the asteroid would pull it back together. I sort of love it when popular ideas from science fiction get blown up, pardon the pun. Did this study give y'all as much glee as it gave me? Well, I I wouldn't say glee. Um, It was uh, pretty geeked out. It was based on models, and turns out that when asteroids explode, they either come back together or they come raining on Earth anyway. So, you know, I just say let's let it rock and roll, and uh, pun intended, and when the Earth ends, it ends. How's that for a good answer? That is a good answer. Rachel, is it depressing or is it just, hey, that's the that's the way it goes. This this thing that we thought we might be able to do to save ourselves if this ever happens, which, by the way, it's not very likely it happens. Rachel, disappointing or kind of exciting? I think it's kind of exciting. I mean, I had no idea that this was even a possibility or a theory, but it kind of made me wonder, like, if it's possible that it would not only recreate itself, could it actually become larger if there was other debris around? And if that's the case, then that's just like a huge, uh, like a bigger problem, right? What I thought was really exciting about it is as a pacifist, what it was trying to say is trying to destroy something violently, exploding it is not necessarily as effective as potentially just watching and waiting and then seeing when things come down. And the earlier we see it, the more we can nudge it out of the way of the earth. And so doing prevention rather than treatment, if you want to take it into a health domain (laughs) as well. So I think, you know, it's, it's great that we know this. It's better to know it now than to try it and have it have huge consequences. And maybe it gives us a better way to to solve the problem in the long run. 
Let's come a little closer to home. This month, the Dragon cargo spacecraft made a test docking with the International Space Station in preparation for a future mission that will deliver astronauts to space. That mission could happen as early as this summer. Friends, we used to do this via NASA space shuttles. Those were retired in 2011. Um, Since then, American astronauts and explorers from other nations have all been hitching rides on Russian rockets. How do we feel about the fact that Dragon was developed by SpaceX, a private space transportation company? For quite a while, the budget for NASA has remained stable, right? So it hasn't gone up, but it hasn't gone down, right? So they've had to prioritize different projects. And so I think if we can have this private-public partnership so that we can do even more in space, that's a benefit. I got a kick out of it. I, I guess I'm not a huge fan of entrepreneurial science, at least at this scale. However, I see that there's a need. What was really fun or funny to me was the Russian space agency sort of snubbing private enterprise, and and Elon Musk in particular. That was interesting to me how the article ended out, where the space agency is criticizing uh, private enterprise and basically saying, you're unqualified to do this. Is there a right and proper role for for for-profit corporations, not just in space exploration, but in other types of science? Like in your particular fields of science, where are you comfortable partnering up with with for-profit entities, and where where does the line get drawn? It's really difficult, and I feel like the question is right in our face now because most researchers that I know are reaching very far afield and getting very creative in their funding. However, it's not clear when we cross the line who we who we get funding from and what biases come along with that. So I'm very conscious of that. I think that that's a really good question. I think it's a really big question and one to answer carefully um, because you need to be cautious and conscious, like what Paul was saying about where the funding is coming from. But I think that most funding sources are used for the proper means of things. This is something that I struggle with as a faculty member in the School of Medicine. This is something we have to be very thoughtful. And there's actually a lot of laws regulating our interactions and our funding with industry and pharmaceutical companies. It can be a slippery slope, but it can be a slippery slope upwards, too, because we can research all we want. We can write all the papers we want and get all the grants we want. But if it's not getting to the public, it's not going to be effective. It's just going to, you know, lengthen our CVs, which is great for job security. But I think most of us who go into science go into science to help improve the world for our, our fellow person. And one way to do that in some in some cases, in some instances, and very carefully, is to do so in partnership with industry. Let's take this out of the conversation about funding and turn back to just this idea of an American spacecraft docking once again with the International Space Station. I mean, let's put on our, like, patriotism hats. Does it feel good? Like, you guys are all Americans. Does it feel good to know that we'll be launching people into outer space from our own home continent? Or are we past the point in which that even matters to us anymore? There's a part of me that's still that 10-year-old girl that remembers sitting in class and watching, you know, the space shuttles take off. And I think being able to do that is exciting to me. What I have a question about is how much collaboration, though, is there, if anybody knows this, how much collaboration there is between NASA and SpaceX? You wouldn't think that SpaceX can just work over here and then like, here it is. How's it going? Right. You know, let's let's hope this works. Like, I mean, the article surely didn't broach this, but does anybody know? There is a ton 
And there, I mean, there has to be, as, right. as you mentioned, like these projects necessitate a lot of collaboration, right? You're not allowed to just dock at the International Space Station willy-nilly. <laughs> I mean, going back throughout its history, NASA may be the exemplar of the public-private partnership. We've tended to see the government part of NASA as the biggest part of it, and I think traditionally it has been. But increasingly over the years, companies are taking the flagship role. So yeah, I think there's a lot of cooperation. Collaboration always has been, but it hasn't always been SpaceX logo on the side of the shuttle. Yeah, and if I were designing this, I would fly it all the way up there, and then the two things wouldn't fit together. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have some duct tape and some monkey glue up there just in case, but that's just me. There's a good depiction of this in the movie Apollo 13, which is based on this real thing that happened where basically a filtering system, a life support system, didn't work. They didn't have the right pieces, and they had to fashion a adapter out of just what they had. I mean, and this is still... Sort of how we do space exploration is we get up there and then we go, oh, no, let's figure it out. And I, I love that. That's, that's the part for me that, that inspires me about space exploration. It's probably a pet peeve of mine that science is always lumped with technology. And then when we boast about, if you imagine any president for the last several generations, when they boast about science, they often talk about technology. And so the two get overlapped, but are they really overlapped? And how do they work together? That's just a really interesting topic for me. And so to geek out on the technology part is natural for a lot of people, and it's wonderful. But is science technology and is technology science? That's a curious question for me. The S and T and STEM are definitely not synonymous. Right, but they're often used in the same phrase, particularly in our political and our funding realm, which rolls back into the earlier question you had about the involvement of private industry, because they're always very interested in the technology part because we want to sell cool new things and we want to make our lives easier. Getting even closer to Earth, a new paper described in a letter published by the journal Nature Climate Change this month has suggested that we could inject sulfate aerosols into the high atmosphere in a way that would effectively dim the sun's rays, sort of like what happens after large volcanic eruptions. That could, the scientists have suggested, mitigate the impact of global warming. This sounds really wacky to me, but the people behind the study come from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. It's like the holy trinity of research organizations. What do you guys think about this? It sounds really scary and could drastically affect our Earth in a positive or negative way. And I also don't know if it's something like the whole geoengineering to try to mitigate climate change should be something instantly thrown off the table, but I wouldn't say that we should throw all of our efforts towards it either. You know, we created this problem for ourselves. We're trying to mitigate it. We're trying to solve the problem, but it's just like creating another problem, I feel like, potentially. Prevention is really good, but I think we're also kind of a little past prevention. We're going to also need to do some treatment. So you're going to want to prevent further problem, but we might have to figure out how to treat it. But something that costs 50 to $200 billion a year, I'm not sure how feasible that is, again, given all the potential risks. We're going to have to pick and choose and make hard decisions as we go forward. But my ecological solutions way down closer to Earth in, in a simplistic manner have always been trying to dovetail more with how systems work as opposed to altering or blocking systems. Rachel, Paul mentioned complex systems. Uh, I mean, you're a biologist. You study the complexity of life. And when we start impacting more than one system at a time, more than one species at a time, things get crazy really quick, right? 
there's all these different systems that feed into one another, and affecting one is kind of, you know, if it goes poorly, it essentially is a domino effect. Definitely things to consider and to be cautious about. Paul, back when you were on the show with us a few months ago, I remember you saying that your work invokes this idea of the globe as a complex system and and the interconnected parts of it. And you said that sometimes it's just a little hard for everybody to wrap their minds around because you talk in these really big, broad terms about the interconnectedness of all things. That's very much true. And another interesting aspect of this study is that the the primary research is done in the modeling realm, which is cool and wonderful. But essentially what a model is, is taking an extremely complex system and boiling down to the most important factors. Those factors could change over time and space, and the amount of complexity going into such models would be really tough, or another way to put it is we should use extreme caution in moving forward, even if we get some pretty positive results in a modeling effort for such a, really a global experiment. Let's turn our attention out of the sky. Let's turn to an idea that seems like it's as old as the Earth itself. Birth order. We have long been told, and many of us believe is a strong driver and indicator of personality. I'm a middle child. I was always told that I was like the prototypical middle child. Earlier this month, though, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a team of researchers declared that the birth order idea is as good as dead. That study included biographical data on famous explorers and revolutionaries. It included a survey of more than 10,000 German families. There was an elaborate personality assessment of 1,500 people. And this added to a growing list of studies from all around the world that have slowly chipped away at this long-held theory And it turns out that one of the reasons it took so long to challenge this idea and to to do away with this idea is because social scientists, and, and I'd argue probably all scientists, have historically been reticent to publish null effects. Why are null effects so important, guys? As the social scientist, I will say it definitely is probably not a social scientist problem. And it's not necessarily that the scientists aren't trying to publish these results. It's the journals who are choosing not to publish them, which is a very, I think, big difference. I think null results are important because we make a lot of conclusions about what we're reading or if people are doing meta-analysis of trying to combine all the different studies that have been out of there to make one kind of big summary statement of what's going on. A lot of times, if they're only using what's in the literature, they're getting a very biased sample. For every one article, there might be three that had null effects. Now, people who know how to do meta-analysis properly know about looking for gray papers, you know, like where you go and you ask people in this field, tell Show me all your failed data. Let me include that in so that we can have a good, you failed, air quotes, right? Because it's just null findings so that we can include, so we can get a more accurate picture of what is going on. At the simplest level that we're, we're interested in differences and we're not interested in sameness is sort of how this weighs out in my mind. And I think that's really fascinating. And in this case, they demonstrate that sameness is really important because we're carrying around this theory that's perhaps really outdated at this point. Yeah, I actually really um, liked, I, I didn't know about this, um, this zombie theory about how it, there's, you know, these studies and we have, as scientists, are so believing in one thing that that's just always that we're trying to search for more of that. Having those null effects, I think, is really important because, you know, there's these ideas that we're still 
like, oh, it's definitely this, it's definitely this, let's keep searching for more, which is fine, but at the same time, like, when you start to get those negative effects, it's an an important cue, in in my opinion, to say, like, well, maybe that's not the case. Why don't we look somewhere else? And I think that that is... Uh, super important, and I think it should actually be talked about more and, you know, talked about even in journals more. Angie brought up the problem with journals not being inclined to publish null results. Uh, Is this also a problem, and I'm going to take this on personally here, is this also a problem in science communication? Because I'm thinking we've been doing this show for nine near a year here, and I'm not sure I've had any guests on to talk about their null results. I think if each one of us sat down for even five minutes, we could think of a theory or two in our fields, which is kind of maybe under our skin or that we would like to demonstrate that maybe sameness is really the prevailing idea, but we're so much rewarded in science broadly to publish differences and some uh, effect. We use this cause effect all the time. So we, we need to find an effect and see we keep striving to find effects. But, you know, an example in my field is, you know, our Wolves eating elk, which are diminishing um, aspen and cottonwood forests in Yellowstone. Well, that's a very exciting idea that's all built on the idea that there's uh, an effect, that there's differences there. But uh, the more we look into things, uh, it's more complicated, and maybe there is actually no effect once we look at some other factors. We don't know. I don't have the answer to that, but it would be nice to explore if the null papers were more readily accepted. Inherently, and, and also kind of unfortunately, too, I think as scientists and researchers, we see negative effects as just that. It's, it's a negative outcome. And a lot of the time we see that as a con because of what Paul just said. We're trying to search for these things and find new discoveries, which is great. It's also still so important to talk about those negative outcomes because it does show that there's no effect or no you know, influence on two different variables. That in itself can lead to the next step of trying to uh, actually find the cause of the problem or um, the pathway in some biological system. Let's turn now to what may be the most important science story of the month. U.S. President Donald Trump's latest budget request is particularly unfriendly to science with a 13% proposed cut to the National Science Foundation, a 12% cut to the National Institutes of Health. That's billions of dollars in lost research funding if this budget was approved by Congress. Those numbers uh, are courtesy of the Washington Post. This administration has been seen as hostile to science in a lot of ways, but perhaps none of those ways is so impactful as when it comes to writing budgets. And Of course, this time around, President Trump will have to get his budget through a Democratic House of Representatives. And he had trouble with much of his intended science cuts through a Republican Congress last year. So maybe this isn't something to fret over just yet. But this is a starting place has got to feel incredibly demoralizing to a lot of scientists. Uh, Yeah, it sure is. And, And I think it's widely known that presidential budgets in this day and age are really just political statements. It's their starting point, as you state, Matthew. However, my concern is that this becomes normalized and we keep pulling, pulling in that direction so that when Congress fights for it, we might not get back to where we started, if that makes sense to you. And because we keep, we keep telling our public in so many ways that we don't need science or we already have the answers. And to me, that's a very dangerous idea in just the discussions we've had previous to this about space and psychology and and really any science topic. You know, I do not worry about this. 
I mean, this is not going to happen. He asked for a huge cut last year, and NIH got a huge increase. But would would we get a bigger raise if it wasn't starting at a negative number, right? Could that number have gone up if we weren't starting negative 5%? Because we are right now in, I mean, this is a boom time. The economy is doing relatively well. Taxes are pouring in. I mean, with I'm sure we could have an economist in here to argue with me. But like, this is one of those times that traditionally science might be seeing more funding. So your point is well taken. How much more potentially could the last budget have granted to science if the starting place for the initial argument wasn't negative? Right. And that's that's the million-dollar question, right? And I think one of the things that we as scientists can do is think more how to show the value of science, right? Because people who are relatively anti-science will often pick up some of the crazier studies that are just funny to kind of go, hmm, you know? Why did you research that? Right. And there's probably, and a lot of times, there's really good reasons. But I think we as scientists could do better to show return on an investment. A lot of times we have cool findings, but we're not showing the public or showing people who are suspicious of science. What is the impact of it? Some of it's really obvious. Others, not so obvious. And and we have to go through a lot of that not so obvious stuff to come up with the stuff that does produce the Big Bang. Right. And even the not so obvious stuff has a bigger impact if you d- dig deep down. But sometimes... You know, a lot of people aren't going on radio shows. They're not trying to reach out to publications because we've been kind of trained early on in our scientific career. Real scientists just do the science. They don't try to interact with the public. They don't want to talk to journalists because you don't have time to do that. You got to get back to your science. And I think as scientists, one way to help increase our funding is show the public how we're changing lives and making the world a better place to be because of what we're finding. A lot of this money is going back in towards replication of these experiments, right? I mean, we need to reproduce these experiments in order to get the right consistent results, and those consistent results are is what leads to some of those really big discoveries and some of those discoveries that are do hit the headlines and everything. And I think that there's this you know background story that isn't necessarily discussed among the public uh, because who wants to hear about me doing the same? experiment over and over again and having some error going on and then finally doing it over and over again and being like, oh, it works. In the time we had left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Let's start with Paul. Paul? Yeah, I found a really great story in the Pacific Standard called Air Pollution Kills More People Than Smoking. And it's actually a twofer. So it it gets at an article from the European Heart Journal and also another article from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The first one, they actually tallied up how many people are dying prematurely. And this is from um, the particulate PM2.5, which we know well here in Utah. Uh, But it actually causes more uh, premature deaths than smoking. And that was really interesting. And then this other article talks about the disparity, and this is fascinating to me between um, basically Caucasian people in America and people of color. So Caucasian people are actually, through their consumptive habits, producing more pollutants, and people of color are actually absorbing more pollutants, so getting the ill effects from it. That was, that was fascinating, the one-two punch of those two studies. Wow. Angie? 
I think an important issue when we're thinking about science and we're thinking about funding was what came from Francis Collins from the NIH talking about the the long history of sexual harassment and discrimination within science and what that impact is. So he's come out and said, we need to do better. As a National Institutes of Health, we have a responsibility. And at the same time, there's been a couple of really great articles coming, one coming from Nature, which shows that about half of women who have children either go to part-time or leave science. Another study came out just this month as well, showing that the amount of money women get in grants as PI is lower than the amount of money that men get for grants at PI in terms of budget cuts and and those kind of issues. So I think there's a lot of issues with the way that science is being funded across different genders and what the role of gender has in terms of advancing science. Because if we're losing almost half of our workforce, as suggested by the Nature nature study, suggests that we're not getting the best science because the the infrastructure and the social context is is missing. Rachel, what did you find this month that you'd like to share? this article that was published in PLOS Bio. This study actually looked at Wikipedia, and they basically were just going to see what the seasonality aspect of people looking up on Wikipedia to learn about nature is. And they did find a seasonality aspect. I thought that this was really interesting because not only did it just look at the human-nature interactions, but it also looked at Wikipedia and And I think that Wikipedia is such a good source of knowledge for the public, and I know that there's some controversy on how to maintain it, of course, but I think that uh, this could grow our our understanding on how we're interested in learning about biodiversity and conservation and what our interaction with that is on the Internet. That's Rachel Casper from the University of Colorado. Rachel, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And Paul Rogers from Utah State, great to chat with you. Yeah, I had a great time and enjoyed meeting Rachel and Angie. And Angie Fackerlin from the University of Utah, thanks for coming on, and I hope you'll come back. Oh, definitely. This was great. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.